Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the podcast today. This is Unknown Friends, your favorite book review podcast, and I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions. Thank you for joining me this week for the 26th episode of the podcast's second season. And today we're discussing G.K. Chesterton's fantastic novel, Man Alive. Before we get started, please just make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you won't miss our weekly episodes that come out every Wednesday morning. Also, be sure to listen all the way to the end of this episode because I've got something rather different in store for the Unknown Friends podcast for the rest of July and the month of August, and I am very excited to share my plans with you guys. So stay tuned after today's book review for that news. Now, let's talk about Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton we have discussed before on the podcast, way back last year in Season 1, Episode 18, when I reviewed his short story collection, The Poet and the Lunatics. So I have already shared his life story, or a brief account of it anyway. Um, You can find that episode with those biographical details in my podcast archives, either on your podcast app or on my website. If you just go to kittywayneproductions.com slash podcast, you will find all my book reviews from season one. So um, it's easy to access season one, episode 18 there. Today, I will just summarize Chesterton's biography very, very quickly. He was born in England in 1874 and died in 1936. So in many ways, he was a true Victorian, even though later in life he confronted early modernism, Um, but he had grown up in the 19th century in an older Britain. In, uh, In 1901, he married Francis Blogg, to whom he remained married the rest of his life for 35 years, and by all accounts, they were a wonderful couple. Um, They both had experienced pain and doubt and even depression in their lives, but ultimately they were both committed to Christ, and they helped each other maintain that commitment to God and to each other. Now, Chesterton was a prolific writer, So we're talking scores of books, fiction and nonfiction, and hundreds of poems and short stories, and literally thousands of essays and newspaper columns. He just was a writing machine. And while sometimes he had to be prolific just for the sake of making a living, it really is remarkable how good most of his content is. Um, Of course, he had his duds. Um, I don't think you can possibly write at the rate he wrote without having some substandard work in the mix. But on the whole, the quality of his writing matched the quantity. Many people resort to simply calling him a genius, and I think they're right. He has this totally unique style, which is a little old-fashioned and Victorian-sounding, but also just kind of sparkles with vitality and and his one-of-a-kind paradoxical wit. He's known as the Prince of Paradox, which will make sense as soon as you start reading anything he wrote. So personally, I first got to know Chesterton through his fiction. 
um, when I was in high school, and I read Man Alive, as well as his novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, and his Father Brown mysteries. And then eventually I read his famous work of apologetics called Orthodoxy, and started getting into his essays and some of his um, short stories and poems. And I even read his most famous play called Magic, which is interesting. He just produced so much diverse material, and it's all worth reading for, for different reasons. But because it's how I first met him, I think his novels definitely hold a special place with me. And there was a time when I would have called Man Alive one of my two or three very favorite novels ever. And it's still one I find absolutely delightful and worth reading over and over again. Now, one thing I do want to insert here, in the midst of praising G.K. Chesterton, of course, just to be clear, I don't agree with everything he thought or wrote. I'm not a huge fan of his politics, for instance, and of course there's the whole matter of doctrinal differences. I am a Protestant, Chesterton was an Anglican for part of his life, but ultimately a Catholic, and then too, Chesterton was a product of his time in many good ways, but also in a few unfortunate ways. Even during his lifetime, he faced repeated accusations of being racist, um, specifically anti-Semitic. Now, he steadfastly denied this charge and defended himself against it, explaining that he embraced Zionism, which he argued was the opposite of anti-Semitism. Um, and others, too, have come to his defense against these accusations. And I'm glad of that, because personally, I don't doubt Chesterton's good intentions. That said, even in the novel Man Alive, he makes references here and there which certainly sound offensive um, to Jews, to African Americans. And, I mean, to do him justice, he categorizes and generalizes about all kinds of people, even just in Man Alive. For instance, he characterizes Americans as a class of people in one light and the British people in another. Um, but those generalizations certainly don't sound as offensive as some he makes about other people groups. So, all that to say, Chesterton is, in a few regrettable ways, a product of his era. Personally, I don't think it's called for to write him off completely or, or throw out his contribution to the Great Conversation just because of some offensive comments here and there. Um, but I'm also not going to pretend like there aren't some offensive comments here and there in his works. So just kind of a caveat before we go on, I do not personally endorse every detail of Chesterton's writing, or even of the novel Man Alive in particular. Now, moving on. So Man Alive was published in 1912, when Chesterton was in his late 30s. Um, it was not his first novel. He had already written The Napoleon of Notting Hill in 1904 and The Man Who Was Thursday in 1908. He had also, by this time, already written some of his most famous works. He published Heretics in 1905 and Orthodoxy in 1908. And he had just recently begun writing his beloved Father Brown stories, the first of which came out in 1910. Also, just to give one more piece of context, by 1912, he had already written two books about Charles Dickens. 
One published in 1906 was a kind of biography or study of the man Dickens, and the other, published in 1911, takes a more specific look at each of Dickens's major works in turn and offers critical introductions to them. So as I mentioned last week, Chesterton greatly enjoyed Dickens and was honestly an expert on his work and even helped revive interest in Dickens's novels, which had begun to wane a little in the early 20th century. Um, so a big thank you, Chesterton, for that contribution. And we'll talk in a few minutes about some of the connections between Man Alive and Dickens's novel Bleak House, which I reviewed last week. So Man Alive is not a huge novel and doesn't have a huge cast of characters, traits which make it ironically quite the opposite of Bleak House, but what Man Alive lacks in quantity, it makes up for in quality. So the central character around which everything else revolves is a man by the name of Innocent Smith. Innocent Smith is impossible to describe adequately. Some folks think he's a madman, some think he's a criminal, some think he's practically a devil. But others see him in quite the opposite light. Some perceive that he's really the first sane person they've ever met, and perhaps closer to an angel than a devil. But he is essentially a man who's truly alive. Alive to the world around him, alive to other people, and most importantly, alive to God, and aware of his own relation to God. So that's sort of the spiritual or, or philosophical nature of Innocent Smith. The more tangible side is this. He does act kind of crazy. He is, he is full of the most unexpected impulses and schemes. He climbs trees, runs along the tops of garden walls, and hosts picnics on the roof. And ultimately, the question of whether he's really sane or insane is the central issue at stake in this book. The other characters have to pass a verdict, quite literally, on the state of his mental and moral character. So let's meet these other characters. Everything in the novel takes place in one location, a boarding house in London called Beacon House. The proprietor is a Mrs. Duke, and her stern, almost emotionless niece, Diana Duke, helps her run the place. The boarders include, first of all, a Miss Rosamond Hunt, who is a cheerful, lively girl with a bit of a quick temper, and then Michael Moon, an Irish journalist who most people consider to be rather wild. And lastly, Arthur Inglewood, um, a reserved, intellectual young man with special interests in photography and bicycling. So these are the diverse residents of Beacon House, and our story opens when one very blustery day, Innocent Smith almost literally gets blown into their yard, a bit like Mary Poppins and almost immediately begins turning the place upside down with his mad schemes and, and boisterous behavior. But after the first shock of his arrival and doubts as to his sanity, Diana Duke, Rosamond Hunt, 
Michael Moon and Arthur Inglewood start to feel that Innocent Smith has a hold of something really special and really good. He brings life to Beacon House and inspirits them all. He wakes them up, Michael Moon says. But just about as soon as they've really started to like him and things seem to be going well, they get some terrible news. A criminal specialist from America arrives and announces that Innocent Smith is wanted on charges of murder and burglary and bigamy. How's that for a letdown? So what proceeds then is the trial of Innocent Smith, rather an informal one held in Beacon House itself with the impertinent journalist Michael Moon acting in the defense of Smith, but a trial of sorts nonetheless. And in the process, we get the full stories of these various charges and the truth behind them. Now, I am going to call it quits there with that brief introduction to the plot, and I want to take a moment to point out a few interesting things about the names of these characters. As a writer myself, I love character names. I find it to be a really important part of the brainstorming process to um, to sift through options and find just the right name for each role in the story I'm writing. And so often, names can have some kind of significance or symbolism as well. Well, something I noticed for the first time when I was rereading Man Alive again this summer, something specifically about the names of these four main characters other than Innocent Smith, is a strange association that all of them share with the Greek goddess Artemis. Now, this may be off the wall, I'm honestly not sure, But personally, I don't think the connection can be purely coincidental. So take a look at this. Diana Duke, first of all. Well, Diana is the Roman name for the Greek goddess Artemis. Then if you look at the last names of the other three characters, you see three things in nature that Artemis is most commonly associated with. Rosamund Hunt, Michael Moon, and Arthur Inglewood. So Artemis, or Diana, was the goddess of hunting, the goddess of the moon, and the goddess of the forest. Now, what is the significance of this? To be perfectly candid, I really don't know. As I've mentioned, Chesterton is a wild one, and he's a genius, and I will never claim to fully understand him. And who knows, he may he may not have had an extremely intentional purpose in naming the characters this way. However, as well-read as Chesterton was, I don't think it's possible that he could have been unaware of this link between the names of these four characters and the goddess Artemis. And I'm going to leave that one there. I'll leave it open-ended because I really don't know what it means. If you do, please tell me because I'm very curious about it. Send me a message and let me know why you think Chesterton chose names with this association to Artemis. Now, other associations um, or symbolism in some of the names of Man Alive, I can make a bit more sense of. Take Michael Moon on his own, for instance. So the word for moon in Latin is luna, and we get our English word lunatic from an ancient belief that uh, changes in the moon were 
connected with people going temporarily insane. So there's this age-old association between the moon and madness. Well, Michael Moon is the first person to recognize that what seems like insanity in Innocent Smith is truly sanity. He, before the others, perceives that what we generally think of as normal, acceptable, rational behavior is really sometimes the most insane behavior possible. He argues that madness does not come by breaking out, but by giving in, by settling down in some dirty little self-repeating circle of ideas, by being tamed. Now, that description takes some unpacking, but suffice it to say, um, I can see why Michael is given the surname Moon, since he is the first one to latch onto Chesterton's idea of true sanity, which looks like insanity. And at times, when the other characters doubt Innocent Smith's sanity, Michael alone staunchly defends him. And then lastly, as far as names go, Innocent Smith himself was clearly named very intentionally. So Smith is an everyman name, right? It allows any reader to kind of uh, take Innocent Smith to heart personally. And Innocent, a rather rare name, means exactly what it says. I don't think it's a spoiler to suggest that Innocent Smith will be proved innocent of the crimes laid against him. But more importantly, he's innocent or almost innocent, in a more universal moral sense. Not sinless, per se, he is a human, but there is a childlike innocence to him, a simple goodness to his character. And ultimately, the point Chesterton wants to make with this whole book is the intrinsic connection between innocence, or goodness, and joy. Michael Moon has some of the best quotes in this novel, and I'll just share with you this one from, from near the end. Michael says, If innocent is happy, it is because he is innocent. If he can defy the conventions, it is just because he can keep the commandments. Barely and brutally to be good, that may be the road, and he may have found it. Now, again, this this needs unpacking, or more truthfully, you just kind of have to read the novel to fully understand the context and, and what Chesterton is saying here. But in essence, he claims that, well, to put it simply, obedience to God leads to a full and happy life. Except that truth is more vivid and more powerful when explored through this wild story about Beacon House and its extraordinary residents and guests. Now, last thing before we wrap up, I just want to make a couple of connections to Bleak House by Charles Dickens. You can hear immediately one connection. Dickens gives us Bleak House. Chesterton gives us Beacon House. Quite a different tone that name has, doesn't it? And while for the most part the bleak house in Dickens's novel really isn't bleak, it's actually quite uh, a cozy place and, and peaceful and homelike, but even so, there is certainly a bleak element running through his novel, um, although optimism still triumphs in the end. But in Chesterton, you don't get much bleak. 
Man Alive is pretty much a riot from beginning to end. And Chesterton's Christian vision and theology is, is absolutely permeated with joy, with light. Yes, there is sin and, and evil in the world. Yes, even good people suffer. But life with God is simply the happiest place on earth, according to Chesterton. And all the parallels between Chesterton's novel and Dickens's novel are fascinating for the fact that Chesterton's versions are brighter than Dickens's. Even though Dickens was an optimist on the whole, there's an unruly, almost volcanic joy in Chesterton that simply cannot be contained or shadowed the way that Dickens's joy can sometimes be. So we have Bleak House versus Beacon House. Uh, we also, as we discussed last week, read a lot about the High Court of Chancery in Dickens, which truly is a bleak place, um, a place not of justice, but of injustice. Well, in Man Alive, we are presented with the High Court of Beacon, which is in some sense ridiculous and childish even, but it actually seeks and finds justice, ironically. And lastly, both Dickens and Chesterton make use of the imagery of wind and weather in their novels. So in Bleak House, the first chapter starts with this long description of um, the fog in London and how it just settles and, and, and stifles everything. And then throughout the book, the character Mr. Jarndyce frequently talks about the wind being in the east whenever something bad is happening or about to happen. Well, yet again, Chesterton flips this and gives us something good and hopeful instead of something negative. So the first chapter of Man Alive starts with a description of the West Wind coming to Beacon House, like a wave of unreasonable happiness and blowing away all the fog of London and letting in light and air. And personally, I would almost go so far as to say that the West Wind for Chesterton in this novel might symbolize the Holy Spirit. I won't be dogmatic about that, but I could certainly see it. He describes the way it, it inspires and uplifts, and it brings dead things to life with its vitality. So this is his Christian joy-filled alternative to the melancholy that you sometimes see from Dickens in Bleak House. Okay, so I am actually going to bring things to a close there. As you can tell, I think very highly of this book. I recommend Man Alive to everyone. But I'm going to go farther than just recommending this novel. We now come to the point in this episode where I'm going to clue you into what I have planned for the podcast for the next several weeks. I'm actually going to be pressing pause on book reviews just for a short time, and in their place, I'm going to be reading aloud Chesterton's entire novel, Man Alive, one chapter at a time. Now, why am I doing this? A couple of reasons. First of all, Full disclosure, a lot is going on in my schedule these next few weeks. 
Um, my sister and brother-in-law are coming for a long visit after not being able to see my family for a whole year, thanks to travel restrictions. And then I'm involved in a 10-day summer camp at the end of the month, and I'm speaking at a homeschool convention in August, and I'm also writing two new plays in the meantime. So, long story short, I just have to take a few weeks off from doing book reviews. But, of course, I don't want to stop sharing content with you guys. And I think Man Alive is a really fun, thought-provoking, and underappreciated book that more people should read and would enjoy if they did. So, I decided to read it to you. So, while I'm taking a break from doing book reviews, I will still be posting regular Unknown Friends episodes. And in fact, I'll be posting two episodes per week instead of just one. So, I will post on Wednesdays and Saturdays for six weeks, starting next week on July 21st. And generally, it will be one chapter per episode, though sometimes I will split or combine chapters over episodes just because some chapters are longer than others. But that's the plan. So by the time we get to the end of August and the end of my time off from doing book reviews, you will have heard a complete, unabridged narration of the novel Man Alive if you keep up with my chapter readings on Wednesdays and Saturdays. One quick qualification um, related to what I said earlier about Chesterton's occasionally offensive comments in his works. My readings will be unabridged, except that I will occasionally omit uh, profanity or offensive language that I am not comfortable even saying aloud. This does not happen often in Man Alive, but there are just a few words or phrases here and there that I will either just leave out entirely or substitute with an inoffensive word or phrase. These changes will be both for my sake and yours, those of you listeners who um, share my discomfort with profanity and things of that nature. But I want to give you a heads up that I'm doing that so that if you go pick up a hard copy of Man Alive one day and run across language that you don't remember from my reading of the book, you will know why you don't remember hearing it. I just left it out. So that's it. That's what's happening on the Unknown Friends podcast. I hope you guys won't be too sad to have no new book reviews for the next six weeks. I know it's different, but I hope you really enjoy getting to experience Man Alive with me over the next month and a half. I can't wait to share it with you. So thanks for listening today to this introduction to G.K. Chesterton's novel, and come back next Wednesday for chapter one. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing at my website, kittywayneproductions.com. See you next week for Chapter 1 of Man Alive. Man Alive.